0: Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. Thank you so much, Garden Church. Thank you so much for having me. I, I know every time I say that, that almost none of you had a choice uh, <laughs> in my coming here today. Nonetheless, I'm. I'm thank you. Well, that, that's something you are, some, at least some of you are happy to have me, and that's it's amazing. Uh, this church is, is um, really special to Amy and I, uh, principally because of relationship. As Don, uh, who many of you uh, have had met jo- and John just mentioned, used to say, the meaning of life is relationship. And we've had a friendship, a relationship with this church over many years. I remember preaching um, at, at the, kind of the earliest iterations of this church, just over the other side of Long Beach, probably about, I don't know, 12 years ago or something, maybe a bit longer And uh, my friendship with Darren and Alex goes back a long way. In fact, I first met Darren um, in Orange County at a a Soul Survivor conference. And this was about 20 years ago now. And he was the first person to get me into coffee. And uh, he did this by basically uh, by using my other great love, which was sugar. And he introduced me to something called the white chocolate mocha. I don't know if any of you ever had it, but it's it's 95% sugar. And I think there's a a shot of coffee in it as well, and uh, that was the gateway drug for me. And and I do love you. We love you as a church. My church, Trinity Church, our church, sends, uh, brings, I bring uh, regards and love to you today. And I love you so much that I would come and preach to you while England are playing a match in the World Cup. (laughs) I just want to make a covenant with you now. <laughs> please nobody tell me the score. If you do, in advance, I proclaim forgiveness over you. But I really pray that nobody would tell me how we're doing against Senegal. They win it, 3-0. Come on. That's a prophetic word. I, I will receive prophetic words. But after 11 o'clock, please say nothing about this. Now, I don't know what you're like in a crisis. I don't know how you do in crisis moments. One thing I've learned about crisis is that you don't know what you're going to be like in a crisis until the crisis hits. Just about 10 years ago now, almost 10 years to the day, actually, our second child, our first son, our only son, Joseph, was born. And what happened was this, we'd, we'd had a child, Grace, she was born here in the USA, she is an American, I'm lining her up for the future presidency, She's got to work on a few things, uh, such as her American accent, uh, but she's, uh, she was born here, and Joseph, we... Uh, we, we were back in the UK when he was about to be born, and grace had come um, really quickly. Uh, it's sort of the beginning of um, sort of contractions, and her birth were really quite short. Now, those of you who've had children, or you know people who've had children who are close to you perhaps, you know that typically the first child takes the longest. So anything after that usually takes even less time. And we knew this, and so we went to the hospital in the UK, and I know some of you got a, a vision of the hosp- of any hospital in the U.K. as if it's some kind of wartime experience. <laughs> now, it, uh, that's not entirely false. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we went to the hospital in kind of good time. Amy was along with the pregnancy, and we knew that things were going to probably happen pretty quickly from this point. So we went in good time, and uh, they made us walk around the surrounding area just to kind of get ready to speed things along. And Amy felt quite certain. A woman's intuition, she had a sense of her body, she felt quite certain things were going to be quite quick at this point. Here's the thing the hospital disagreed. And we could not persuade them that my wife knew her body better than they did, and so they sent us home. Now, we're, we're British, and so we do what we're told. <laughs> we like to form orderly cues. Uh, in line for things, we don't push in, and when people in positions of authority tell us to do things, we do them. That's one of the k- kind of crosses that we bear as Brits. And so they told us to go home, and home we went. <laughs> and uh, we went home, and my wife Amy took a bath, and I snuggled myself down to bed. It was about midnight at this point. I felt quite happy. I felt happy that I was going to get a full night's sleep, and uh, and I went to sleep. And not long after, Amy got out of the bath and she put herself to bed. And within what must have been 10 minutes or so, I was rudely awoken with these words. Johnny, I need to push. Friends, (laughs) these are words no man ever wants to hear while he is lying in his bed at home. And so I began, in that moment, I I just remember it like it was yesterday, I I just began shaking with just adrenaline coursing through my veins. I tried to stand up and I was shaking. I couldn't get my own trousers on. And then I went round my pants on. Uh, and then it's just a bit of cross-cultural thing. I couldn't get my pants on all my pants on. And I went around the other side of the bed and I tried to dress Amy. Again, I couldn't do it because my hands were shaking. She she I tried to help her to walk out, but she she had to stop every 30 seconds or so for some very strong contractions. We got into the car and I began to drive. I chose the wrong way. I went down the way where there were kind of road bumps. Over every single road bump, it was like speeding things along. I knew we were in trouble when she started to pray in tongues. I was like, okay, she, English words had failed her. She's praying in tongues. She was grabbing onto that thing in the car that's there. You know that thing that you wonder why it's there? Why is it there? It's there for people who are ready to have a baby. In the end, she couldn't hold it any, hold him any longer. We stopped on the road. I called 999-911 in your money. And uh, they began to talk me through what I should do, how to deliver my own child. I wasn't listening to a single word that they said. (laughs) At one stage, the guy said to me, Sir, I am going to have to ask you to calm down. That was a gentle rebuke. In the end, uh, Joseph was delivered on a stretcher on the way into the hospital. It was an amazing thing. Now, I say this simply to illustrate the fact that we don't always know a crisis is coming before we're in it. And when a crisis hits, it's usually too late to be prepared for it. My conviction is that we are living in a hinge point at history at this moment. And in some sense, that's true of every moment in history. But this is particularly true, I think, at this moment. And what we're seeing in in our society, and I suppose, you know, we live in distinct moments in different places. Of course, I live in the UK. You live here in America. But in the West, that is what we know to be the developed world. We are in a moment of crisis. Now, the word crisis comes from a Greek word, krinane. That word means to judge or decide. This is a decision point, I believe. For us. And we're seeing that crisis, that decision moment manifest in each sphere of our society. I won't go through them all, but we're seeing that politically. In my city, Nottingham, we're seeing that. We're seeing that in the UK. We have become, I think, probably it's fair to say, uh, with our kind of constant transition of uh, leadership, uh, honestly, the laughing stock of the world quite literally, over recent uh, moments. Politically, we're seeing crisis globally. We're seeing a return to a war in Europe, which for us in Europe feels like a significant shift. You know, we simply cannot assume that our system of government, democracy, which for us is kind of foundational in our understanding of who we are, we cannot assume that that is a given any longer, in this country, in my country, I should say, just in—and I'm sure the stats would be similar to what they are in the USA—in uh, 2022, 18 to 24s, a group of 18 to 24s, were surveyed on what they thought about democracy, not what they thought about a particular government or a party, what they thought about the system of democracy. And 55% said it thought they thought it worked badly for them. Only 19% thought it worked well. January the 6th is a a date that is emblazoned in every one of your imaginations, is it not? In the same way that September the 11th was, although for different reasons. What we saw then was significant, it said something about the moment we are at in our history. Economically, we're seeing this as well. These are seismic moments, shifting moments. Our institutions are shifting. Our institutions are on shifting foundations. And what we're finding in the UK, and I'm sure you're finding it here as well, is that our institutions are no longer able to form people in the way that they were. You cannot send a child to school any longer in a kind of a secular public system and expect that child to be formed in a way that would be congruent with the kingdom of God. It's just not possible. And the church as well is on significantly shifting sands in my own country, we're seeing... uh, Crises in churches, and I know we're seeing that across the Western world, leaders falling here, there, and everywhere. It's like a model of church is shifting. I would say that a model of church is under, in some way, under God's judgment. I think there is a crisis of vision for discipleship and personal holiness. Can you feel it? Maybe you can even see it. You probably are experiencing it in some way. And here's the thing. I think this has come as a huge shock to many of us. Because the stability that we have experienced in our cultures, at least uh, since World War II, I think had led us to believe that something approximating the kingdom of God had come. And perhaps we forgot that the only way for the kingdom of God to actually arrive is by a new creative act through the power of God. And so I'm here to say some words today which an American friend of ours said to our church, Trinity Church, the old crockery won't do. And hopefully you understand what I mean by that. We have to find, I think, in this new time as the church, a new way to do things, a new way to be. And I want to say that that begins with a new focus of our attention. It all comes back to our attention. So if you have a Bible, open it with me and I'm going to read some verses from verse 9 of Revelation chapter 1. For, for those of us who are new to church, you're new to scripture, Revelation's the last book, I'm helping you out here. So start at the end, turn left, one book and you'll find Revelation. It's an incredible book, it's a, it is a letter but it's an apocalyptic letter, it's a, a letter of revelation, of unveiling And it's unveiling, fundamentally what's being unveiled in Revelation is the state of things as they are. Not actually principally the state of things as they will be. This isn't necessarily simply a prophecy about what will come, although it does contain that. But it's a prophecy that the apostle John gives to some churches and to the church then and now about the way the world is. And on the, most of it's about the way the world is. And most of it's about the way, the, the way that heaven is, about the way that reality really is. And there is also some stuff about how things will come to pass. But here's what we read in Revelation chapter 1 from verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on the scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus. Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We'll stop there for now. We will read on in due course. I, John, was on the island of Patmos. The context here is crisis. we talked about crisis. You've heard my crisis. I've said we're in a crisis. The context that John writes to is crisis. The context he writes from is crisis. He writes this in probably AD 96. And John, the beloved disciple, is now in his mid-80s. He is in exile on a prison island called Patmos. This is out in the Aegean Sea. It's like a rocky outcrop. Think of Alcatraz. That's what this is. Now, he's ended up there uh, because he's been sent there. This is a place where criminals and troublemakers in the Roman Empire would be sent. It was a place, there was a rock quarry there, and you would have sent there to do hard labor. Now, why was he there? Well, life for disciples of Jesus had become intolerably difficult in this period. The emperor Nero, who was emperor from AD 67, for those of you who like history, was feeding Christians to lions. Lions. And in this period, the apostles Peter and Paul were martyred during that time. But in AD 92, so about four years before John writes this book from this vision, the fire got hotter. Another emperor took over from Nero. His name was Domitian. Now, to compensate for his own insecurity, uh, Domitian made the decision that he was going to turn the temperature up on anyone who opposed him. And he did this by demanding that all subjects of the Roman Empire worship him as Lord and God. So what you had to do is you had to worship the emperor. And all that you had to do was go to a temple, the temple of Domitian. You had to take a, a pinch of incense. You had to cast it on the altar and pay homage to Caesar as God. And he had to say these words, Caesar Curios. Caesar is Lord. But for disciples like John, this is not possible because a fundamental Christian kerygma, a fundamental Christian uh, position of worship was to say that Jesus is Lord. And to say Jesus is Lord was to say Caesar is not. As so John had said, look, I can't worship Caesar in that way. And so because of that, people like John were being sent to places like Patmos. This is where John writes this book. And John, a pastor prophet through and through, writes a letter to seven churches. I've named them. I thought I did quite well to get the pronunciation right. I'm not going to try it again. (laughs) Seven churches, why seven? Well, seven is the biblical number of completeness. So yes, John is writing to specific churches that he knows, but these seven churches are representative of every church. Every church at that time and every church at this time, this book is still relevant to us. And John is in the spirit on the Lord's day. In other words, he's doing what we've been doing, except he's probably doing it on his own. And in the midst of that, he gets an open vision, a revelation, an apocalypse, a a, a revealing, a a tearing back of the curtain, the, the curtain between heaven and earth. You know, heaven is not someplace out there, beyond the universe, beyond the galaxy. It's not Star Wars. Heaven is a reality that is here and now, interlocking with our reality. It's around us. We can't see it always, but there are times where this thin veil that separates heaven from earth is is torn and we see in. And we see things as they really are. It's a deeper measure of reality, if that makes sense. And John gets a vision of it. And that vision changes everything. And this vision, and this is really my central point today, what this vision entails, before it's about specific churches, before it's about directions of things to do, before it's about a new heavens and a new earth and the future reality of the cosmos and you and I and everything else, it is a vision fundamentally of a person. It is a vision fundamentally of Jesus. What... what, What John's vision is captured by, what he needs most to know in a time of crisis, what he needs most to be able to communicate to churches under oppression and in significant moments of trouble is not a new way to deliver programs to a church. Not new ways even to grow congregations, though by the way, that's a good thing to do. It is not a new way to to brand the church or, or to grow a staff team. Again, worthy things, things that we should be focusing on if we're in ministry. It is not a new strategy, a new financial gift. These are good things, but they're secondary things. The thing that John needs, the thing that John needs to see on Patmos, the thing that he needs the church to see is the vision of Jesus. What you and I most need to be captured by is a vision of Jesus. If you've never, ever met Jesus, my prayer for you today is that the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit, God would give you a vision of Jesus. That it would fill your attention, your imagination. What's fascinating, and for those of us who... We're, you know, part of the club. We're in the choir. We've been singing the songs for years. We need a vision of Jesus like never before in these days. And the vision of Jesus is fascinating because it's unlike anything that you and I used to sing. Here's what we see. Verse 12. I turned round to see the voice. Interesting phrase. We'll come to that. To see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone not something, but someone, like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of a rushing waters or rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp d- double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance." When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. Easy for you to say. If you're the one whose eyes are like a blazing fire. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. What a vision. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. Again, a fascinating phrase. When John turned around to see the voice, what he saw was the same person that he knew way back in Palestine. The same one on whose chest his head had laid the night before he was betrayed. The one whose heartbeat he had heard pulsating, out of his chest, the same but different. The same one he saw on the cross, the same but different. How different? The same but bigger. I turned and I saw one like a son of man. This phrase son of man, many of you know this, it means human being. It's just a way of referring to someone who's a human being. But there's also a prophetic significance. is a, a phrase that would have sparked an imagination. It comes from Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14, this profoundly important prophetic text from the Old Testament, where Daniel himself, in an apocalyptic text like this one from John, sees a vision of God himself, the Ancient of Days. And there is a son of man, a human being, Who is given all dominion, all authority, all power, all glory by the Ancient of Days, a human god, a human being standing in the presence of God, given all of these things? So, by using this phrase, what John is doing, what Jesus is doing by, you know, giving this phrase to John, is to say, "I am that one." Now, this figure in Daniel is the central figure in history. Let me say that again. Whoever is being revealed to John here is the central figure in history. The whole of reality is ordered around this one. He's the one who comes to establish the kingdom, the rule and the reign. It is Jesus. Central to John's crisis, to his vision, is a person. And that person is the person of Jesus. I can't say this clearly enough. I've already said it. I'm going to say it again. I'll say it a few times this morning before I'm done in about 10 minutes. We need to hear this. If there is any other center to our faith, this is an, by the way, this is an amazing church. You are, you are not likely to find a better church. But if this church is the center of your faith, you are in trouble. This is the best one you'll find outside of Nottingham that's not even true I'm, I'm afraid to say it's not true it's much better this is the, the best church you've liked to find for a long way it's just an amazing place but if this place is the center of your devotion the center of your faith you're in trouble the center of your faith if you're, your family if you have a family if you've got friendships these are wonderful things these are gifts from Jesus they're important they are they're a grace to us if your community group whatever it is you do here if you're If anything, these are all good things, but they must never become the center. The center has to be Jesus. He's the one. So who is he? Well, he's clothed in a robe reaching to his feet. The, The robe here, I'm going to speed things up here because there's quite a lot of information here. And I just want you to catch a picture. The robe here is a priestly robe. It reaches to his feet. Now, what this means is that the glorified son is the great high priest. What is a priest? A priest is a mediator. The word me the word the Latin word for priest is pontifex. Actually, I, I found this out a little while ago. The, the, <laughs> the Pope's Twitter handle is at Pontifex. <laughs> pontifex literally in Latin means a bridge builder. It's an engineering term. This high priest, this one, Jesus, not the Pope, this one, <laughs> is the bridge builder. He builds a bridge between the eternal chasm between God and man. He is the one who builds the bridge that you and I would be unable. It's an unassailable bridge. It cannot be reached. It cannot be crossed except that he would come from heaven to earth to build a bridge by being both God and man, enabling us who are men and women to travel over his back through the cross. He's the one who builds that bridge. This robe is a priest's robe, is also a kingly robe. This high priest is, all, is a priest, but he's also a king. He has authority to do whatever it is that he pleases. And he has a golden sash around his chest. That's interesting. That the key thing here, again, this speaks of authority, but the fact is it's around his chest. Now you, if you wear a a belt, as I am doing today, be pleased to know my trousers are not about, my pants aren't about to fall down. I'm wearing a belt. Wearing a belt around your waist is an indication of readiness to do work. But wearing a belt or a sash around your chest in that way is an indication that you have completed your work. Jesus' work is complete. Do you know this? You as a disciple of Jesus, you work, you live, you worship from the completed work of Jesus, not for the completed work of Jesus. The sash is round his chest. It is significant. Now, I love it at this point. John strains for language and he stops uh, saying things directly and he begins to say one like, one like. He uses metaphor. Why do we use metaphor? We use metaphor because we are describing things that we cannot describe correctly any longer. So he says, the hair on his head, well, oh, was, I suppose it was a little bit like white wool. It was, it was nothing like white wool because it was the hair on his head and I can't describe it, but it was a little bit like white wool. This is a picture of wisdom. You know, this one, this Jesus is wise. He is the God only wise. He is the one who knows. He sees He sees through beneath The surface of what's happening. He sees beyond it to the way things really are. He's the one who's able to dispense, let me say this to you this morning, he is the one who's able to dispense specific wisdom for your situation this morning. If you've come here with a question in your mind, you've come to the right place because Jesus is here and he will give wisdom. But it's also a picture of purity. He purifies. He can be trusted to rule in the rain because he's perfectly clean. He's altogether holy. There is nothing impure in him. His eyes were like blazing fire. His gaze penetrates beneath the surface. You know, in, in kind of Marvel terms, Marvel movie terms, I guess he would be x-ray vision. Didn't have x-ray here. So uh, we talk about his eyes just being like blazing fire. He can see beneath all our charades, all our attempts to impress him and other people. He sees beyond it, sees beneath it. He sees us as we really are. And he loves us as we really are. And this is good news. It would be bad news if he saw everything and if he weren't also completely pure. But his eyes are blazing fire. And that means that he is pure, but also that his eyes can make us pure. His eyes are, his his sight of you and he sees you now. Do you know that this morning, I'm here to tell you, he sees you. He doesn't just see you, he sees you. And as he sees you, so he purifies you because his very sight is purifying because his eyes are blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Some translations say like burnished bronze. This is again picking up a picture from Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar had, he had brass, His feet were brass and clay mixed together. And that was a sign of the uncertainty of his kingdom. But Jesus' feet are like burnished bronze. They are solid and secure. They are a foundation on which you and I can stand. His voice is like the sound of rushing waters, like water flowing over a waterfall. There's a picture of power and peace. You had that, you've been to a waterfall and it's like, it's a tremendous noise. Somehow it also carries serenity. In his right hand, he held seven stars. You know, in the time of this vision, there were seven planets that were known and people thought that all of life was under the control of these seven planets. And so they consulted astrology tables to get a vision of what their future might hold, but they don't need to do that any longer because Jesus holds them in his hand. We don't go to understand the future by consulting a table would well, dare I say, going to see some Instagram influence and what they might say is about, or even asking a pastor, we go to Jesus. He's got the whole world in his hands. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. In other words, his words cut. They pierce through all the noise and the nonsense. William Barclay, a biblical scholar of a couple of generations back now, noted that the sword is a tongue-shaped sword. And it's the kind of sword that's used for close combat. Jesus' words are intended to be up close and personal. And they are sharp. They can cut through whatever opposes them. And his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. I think this is kind of what you do at the end of a vision like this. You say, well, his face was like the the sun. (laughs) The sun, by the way, kids, don't look at the sun. That's the first thing you're taught, isn't it, at school? don't, Don't look at that thing in the sky. You'll go blind. It's a picture of divinity and power. And so it's no wonder that John falls in his face. And as he does, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. John, who lived in a time of great crisis, as you and I do, who'd been exiled, and some of us feel like we've been exiled. He must have feared for the future. And Jesus says, you don't need to be afraid, because I've, I hold the keys to death and Hades, keys Signify signify authority. Your greatest foe is death. Your greatest fear ultimately is death. And I hold the keys to death. I've walked out of death myself. Don't be afraid. Where is this Jesus? The first thing we find out is that this Jesus is walking amongst the lampstands. The lampstands signify the church. This Jesus this morning. This Jesus... is here. This Jesus is in this church. This Jesus is walking among you. This Jesus is in and around your life. This Jesus is at the center of your life. Not the Jesus of your shrunken and sinful imagination. Not the Jesus of my impoverished imagination. No, this Jesus, this Jesus is in your life. This is the Jesus who sits on the throne. This is huge. If the old crockery won't do, what will it look like to use, to take up new crockery in these days? I'm convinced that what we need more than anything else, at the beginning of Advent, to connect it to your series. What we need more than anything else is a new vision. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. That's what we need. A new vision of Jesus to see him as he is. Every church needs that. We need that. I need that. I need that as much, if not more than any one of you. This church needs that too. Because God is calling you to do immeasurably more than you can ask or imagine. You cannot do it without a new vision. Whatever it is that you, th- you think he has for you, has more. He has much more. And you need a bigger vision. Might I say to you, I say this with all affection, that one of the things that I think, one of the reasons I think that other things in our lives, and, and one of the things that, for example, politics, has become so big in the church of Jesus Christ is because our vision of Jesus is too small. And so we look for solutions on earth. And I'm not saying for a minute we shouldn't be engaged politically. I'm not saying for for a minute Jesus doesn't call people to be involved politically. I think he absolutely does. But if we are looking for secular sources of salvation, it is evidence to us that our imagination has been shrunk We need a biblical imagination, a new vision of Jesus. What fills your imagination? What is in your mind? When you wake up, what fills your mind? When you go to sleep, what fills your mind? I'm not talking abstractly. I'm talking concretely. I don't need an answer. This is rhetorical. (laughs) Don't embarrass yourself. Let me put it another way. Let me put it in a kind of Dallas Willard way. What is your vision for the good life? Answer this question. If only I had more, I would be content. What's the answer? $10,000, a new car, a house, a new relationship, success in your career. These aren't bad things inherently but they were never intended to fill your vision. It's Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you as well. It is on this point, and this point I think most significantly, that many of our churches are surrendering to the world. We just have not found ways to be attentive to Christ in the same measure that we are attentive to the world. If we spend most of our days staring at this piece of poo, How do we expect to be attentive to Jesus? Your attention determines your affection. Your attention ultimately will decide your direction. If you have a small vision of Jesus, you may end up living a defensive and fearful life. But if you have the kind of vision of Jesus that John of of Patmos was given, you will find yourself living free, fear-free, expansive, abundant lives. As psychiatrist Kurt Thompson writes, attention is the engine of the mind's train that pulls along the rest of the functional cars. Ultimately, we become what we pay attention to. And the options available to us at any time are myriad. To have one's mind set on something is essentially about paying attention. What do I pay attention to? Paul says that what we pay attention to doubles back and governs us. Hence, our attention is deeply associated with either life or death. That's my question to you this morning. What is your attention on? May it be so that it be said of us at the Garden Church in Long Beach, at Trinity Church in Nottingham, at the Church of Jesus Christ in the United States and in the UK, may there be a renewal of faith such that people would say to us that in these days we recaptured a vision of Jesus front and center, Jesus, that we were willing to live and even to die for Jesus. Why don't we stand? I would love to pray. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.